Uh, we have to thank Marcus and Mick. They're the ones who made the burritos this morning. So, well done, guys. Well done. Yeah, well done. That was very, very good. Appreciate that. Um, thank you guys so much for uh, just doing what you do every Saturday like this, getting up early and coming and um, making a sacrifice to be here and um, stay in the course. And I don't know, you may be here this morning and uh, maybe a little discouraged at where you're at, but yet you're here and, and I'm really I'm, I'm grateful for that. And uh, don't give up. And we'll talk a little bit about pressing on here in a little bit. But um, uh, make sure that when you come in, like usual, you, you can always just check your name off on the attendance sheet and, and make sure you grab one of the handouts that will be there, paper clipped for you, uh, just so that you've got what you need. And as usual, if you need to, to get up, move around, get some more food, uh, just do whatever you need and um, make yourself at home. I want to um, have you, if you would, for me, uh, open your Bibles. Let's look at Hebrews 12 for a minute. If you're on uh, McShane's reading, you'll get this today if you haven't already. And um, I just wanted to point out just a couple of things, uh, maybe just to kind of set our minds in the right direction. Hebrews 12 is, is a, uh, boy, it's a powerful chapter, and it's, it's heavy. It is not a lightweight chapter. You have a big conclusion, a big therefore from the chapter about faith in chapter 11. That's where the writer begins, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, here's the command, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. So there's there's a side note. This isn't even why I wanted to bring you here, but this is a, an excellent verse to help you understand the difference between the way sin works in your life now compared to the way it worked back then, before Christ. Before Christ, sin dominated you. Sin was your master. You were a slave to it. Here, it entangles you. So sin really hasn't changed. The cross didn't change... In, in many ways, the nature of what sin is and how it acts and what it looks like. Its nature is to snag you and get you and overcome you and overwhelm you. But you've changed in Christ, and now the most that it can do is entangle you and trip you, snag you. But it, it's not your slave master. Um, so let us lay that sin aside which so easily entangles us. And let us run, command. Um, but this is what I want you to see. Verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus. What is he concerned about in those commands? Yes, lay aside the encumbrance, lay aside the sin that entangles, and run. But what kind of a runner are you? What kind of a layer, a cider are you? One way, your eyes are fixed on Jesus, right? And then he describes Jesus, author and perfecter of faith, who is he? Well, he's the one who had joy set before him as he endured the cross, despising the shame. And who is this Jesus? He's the one who has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
And look again, verse 3. He emphasizes again the fixing your eyes on Jesus. Consider Him. So what is your laying aside every encumbrance? And what is your laying aside the sin that entangles you? And what is your running with endurance the race that is set before you? If you don't have your eyes fixed on Jesus and if you're not considering Him, you cannot have a Jesus-less throwing aside of sin. That's what His concern is. In other words, do you have a category for this, guys? Do you understand that it is possible for you to be saying no to sin, trying to fight it, but not be fixing your eyes on Jesus? That's what we'll do, unfortunately, and that's what will happen. So this is the reminder in chapter 12 to consider him. And he describes him again, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now just think about that. Have you grown weary? If you find yourself having grown weary, if you find yourself um, maybe losing heart in your pursuit of holiness in your life, that's the so that. So that that doesn't happen, what's the lead? Consider him. Okay, so what does that tell you about when do you grow weary and when do you lose heart? When you're not what? Considering him. You see, Jesus is central. Jesus is absolutely central to your life, um, to your encouragement, to what you need um, most. Guys, make sure you do not miss the burritos at the back and the handouts that are at the table and just come on in, make yourselves at home. Now, then you have the whole section in verses 4 to 17 about the discipline um, that God our Father brings to us. Um, And then in verse 18 and following... He's, he's, he's going to focus on Christ one more time. And he, he starts negatively and he says, But you have not come to a mountain like Israel did in the Old Testament. But, verse 22, you have come to, and then he's got this laundry list. Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to, to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, and to God, the judge of all the spirits of the righteous made perfect and look at verse 24 you have come to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel so his whole focus not his whole focus but a strong emphasis in this chapter is on fixing your eyes on Jesus consider him um, you've come to Jesus um, and then look at verse 25 See to it then that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Um, That's what they did in the Old Testament. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them, wow, we're going to be in a world of hurt if we refuse the one who's speaking to us. And and as I look at that, I think of of discipline one. Um, He is speaking. He has spoke to us. But the deal is, um, don't reject him who is speaking. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Consider Him. You've come to Him. In other words, what I want to just encourage you with is the Christian life can be reduced to something very simple but very profound. And it's this. Let's just come back to the basics. It's about you getting Jesus. It's about you fixing your eyes on Jesus. It's about you considering Jesus. It's about making sure that you don't reject or turn away from him who has spoken to you in his word. Guys, that's just what it, it all comes back to. If you 
get distracted and, and life seems complicated and mixed up, look, just bring yourself back to this. Fix your eyes on Christ. Everything will begin to take its proper place. Shepherd your heart to come back to the words he spoke and receive him again there. Um, so I just want to encourage you with, with Jesus. It's all about him. Okay? Let's pray and we'll review our disciplines together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. Lord, I needed this this morning to be able to think that and remind myself that to fix my eyes on your son. Thank you for the description of him in chapter 12. We should take time and meditate on how he is described there. He's the one who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. He despised the the shame which was my shame in my sin and and victoriously he has sat down at your right hand. Lord, help us this morning even to put our eyes on him again together as men in the church. Help us to do this um, diligently. Help us to discipline our our hearts and our minds uh, to do this on a daily basis, an hourly basis. What heaven is all about is uh, an uncountable host of souls whose eyes are fixed on Jesus, who consider him every moment, who have come to him finally and fully, and who receive everything that he has to give. Lord, we get a taste of that now. We are hindered by our flesh and the sin which so easily entangles us. God, help us to fight. Help us to fight today against our sin well. Help us to pursue holiness of life. Use our time together this morning in small group and in our um, lesson to advance that further within us, Lord. We need you desperately and we set our eyes on your Son and it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. If you want, turn your notebook over to the back. We're going to do a quick run-through. Six disciplines that we're setting before ourselves. These are spiritual leadership-like disciplines that we want to focus on. And the first one begins with what we've already kind of talked about. You shepherd your heart. That's discipline number one. A godly man must be a man who doesn't wait for somebody else to do that with him, but he does it for himself. That you come and you bring your heart before the, the Word of God in order to get the God of the Word. Um, you don't want to come to the Word of God to just get words, to just get your Bible study, to get your lesson, to check off the box. But you come there to because this is the best that God has revealed Himself to you and you want Him. Why is it that you want Him? Because God made you new. You are a new creation in Christ and you have desire for him now. You have capacity for him and he has given you an equipping in your new nature, your new creation that you are to come after him. So come after him. Trust him and obey him and do that. The first place of impact that um, a man who is shepherding his heart needs to make is in his home, uh, the household. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter who you live with. It doesn't even matter if you live alone. Um, I know some of you do. Um, The key is that you would, in your household, want such an aroma of Jesus Christ and the gospel that when people come into your home, they sense that you 
are all about the God of the Word, um, the Jesus of the Gospel. And um, that's where you make that impact. It, that's just where you live, and so it should be an inseparable conclusion that, well, of course, then you would have this aroma here because this is where I live. Um, so we're going to focus on that this morning for the first time. We're going to do a biblical survey of the household relationships. Um, so we'll get to that in a little bit. Third discipline is the ministry. You're then ready um, to step into the lives of people as you are focusing on caring for your own soul well and caring for people in your household. That gives you integrity as you then step into the lives of um, men in the church and even beyond the church, bringing the gospel to people. So um, it's not a do, uh, do discipline one like you did first grade, and then when you're done with first grade, you never think about it again. You go to second grade, which is the home. And then when you're done with second grade, then you go on to third grade, which is, you know, uh, the ministry. It's not like that. These are things that you're constantly working on. They're, they're always flowing simultaneously together. But there is a priority. Um, the priority is that if you are shepherding your heart well, the other ones will take care of themselves, will have much, um, you'll have fruitfulness in the other ones that you would never have if you skip caring for your own soul with the word of God. Uh, and then discipline four, we really want to focus you on um, the qualifications for godly leadership in the church. Primarily, first, deacon qualifications. Um, there isn't a reason why one of you wouldn't, would say, uh, yeah, that's not, I'm not, that's not where I'm going to be. No, you should aim for it. You should aim for those godly characteristics. In fact, what you'll find even with the elder qualifications is that you cannot find one of them for the elders that is not true for every single member of the body of Christ. <coughs> Did you know that? It's just that elders and deacons are to be like leaders in exemplifying those. Everybody is to exemplify them. But these are the men who have, by God's grace and by a prayerful pursuit and carefulness of living, have tried to attain to these things. And there's not a reason why you shouldn't do that. Um, so we want to direct you in, in that um, direction. Uh, discipline five is the hermeneutic, which means the way of interpreting scripture. We're going to talk about that. You'll get a chance to um, see something of that model again this morning, just how, how we want to handle the Bible. Um, it, it's, it's, it's said that um, preaching or teaching is public hermeneutics. I don't know if you've ever thought of it that way. When, whenever anybody is standing up and teaching you, if it's you in small group and you're teaching your small group, you are publicly demonstrating how you believe the Word of God should be handled, how it should be interpreted. Um, and so every Sunday when you come to Grace Bible Church, you get a hermeneutics lesson without even maybe knowing it. Every time you come to Build, you get a hermeneutics lesson. Every time you're coming, and, and so the point is, is we need to make sure that we're, we're thinking rightly about how to interpret the Bible. Um, one of the key things we want to do in interpreting the Bible is read our Bibles from left to right, to interpret them from left to right, um, to let Scripture unfold. Um, have you ever thought about this? How long did it take God to write both the Old Testament and the New Testament? We pick it up, and it's done. And we think maybe it just kind of came that way. You know, just whap. One book came. How long did they have to wait for this? So they had to read the beginning parts of it a long time, over and over and over, and then a little bit more would get added. And then they'd be like, oh, we read a little bit more and more. Listen, um, it requires 
if God was patient in 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 Revelation, you can be patient in your hermeneutics. And what I mean by that is, don't just skip past the early stuff to get to the later stuff. Be patient. Let your interpretation follow the slow pattern of left to right as it was revealed. We need to know our Old Testament's better. Not because we need to live by everything Moses said to Israel, but because we need to understand what the God of Moses and Israel was doing as he was unfolding his his heart and his law for them. We learn about the lawmaker through his laws, and we watch and we see Christ come, who is the fulfillment of that. Then we, all the more, because something greater than Moses has come in the temple and Solomon has come, it, it helps us to know. So take your time to read through your Bible. This is why we want you to read the whole Bible, not just your five favorite New Testament books. Okay? So we'll talk more about that towards the end of the year. Discipline six is the vision and the purpose of our church, uh, Grace Bible Church. Um, we have three parts to each. The three parts of the vision is the glory of God in the cross of Jesus Christ for the transformation of life by the Spirit. It's Trinitarian vision. We're trying to set our sights, our vision on the threefold Godhead. And then that leads us to a purpose, a gospel purpose, a gospel purpose. We live in a part of the, we live in the redemptive era of the gospel mission going forth. We do not live in Abraham's era. We live, we don't live in Israel's era. We live in the gospel of Jesus Christ going to the ends of the earth era. And so that means we're going to be drawing in, building up, and sending out with the gospel. Okay? So there you have it. There's your review. Once again this morning, your wife, just set the alarm in the middle of the night, and when you wake up, just disappoint, shepherd my heart. You just need to, these things just need to come out of you. Okay? This is what we want and want to point you to. All right. Um, one other thing before you get going. I just want to encourage you on your Bible reading, and maybe you guys, I don't know if any of you in small groups are planning on talking about this, or you already have talked about this. Look, how many of you have fallen off the bandwagon already? Oh, come on. Okay? Yeah, that's right. Let me, if you're just kind of leaning, like you're riding that horse and you're just starting to go. I was a kid riding once in the, in the snow in Nebraska, and I just remember going, why am I going like this? And I fell off the horse into the snow. If you're doing that, that's okay. You can confess that too. Um, look, what do you do to talk yourself out of that and back into it? What are some of the things that you tell yourself? Those of you who have fallen off the, 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 the horse a lot or the bandwagon a lot on this, what, what do you tell yourself? You say, I need this. There are some benefits here that I will not get anywhere else. I've got to be in God's word and get his truth in front of my, my brain and in front of my heart. But I'm five days worth of reading behind. Where do I even start? Five days. Ah, that's good. What? <laughs> Forgive yourself. <laughs> yeah, let's find. Let's look for that one in scripture. Oh, we're done. Um. <laughs> one of the analogies that I use is I consider the Bible a thermometer. It's a thermometer of my heart, and I think of the times where I'd be drilling a big old prime rib roast. And there would be no way I'd trick that thing about using the thermometer. And the Bible is the only thermometer to 
give you the check of what the temperature is in my house. Good. If, if the goal for me is to stay on my reading plan day, um, that's that's not a very good goal. That says you can forgive yourself, David. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's a goal that falls short of why God gave us Scripture. He gave us His Word to reveal Himself to us. And so, whether I'm on today's reading or the reading I was supposed to have done November 10th, <coughs> You still get to sit there with God's word open on my lap, and my heart is there before him. So, where's the condemnation in that? And the crazy thing is, is as you do that day by day, you'll find it's relatively easy, to, at least for me, to catch up. Whereas if my goal is, man, i got to do five readings in one day, well, what the heck did I just read? I didn't have God in my mind. I had, I had some, some ruler catching up in my mind. And look what I missed. I missed God in the top tub of my reading plan. So what? Uh, thankfully, God's usually gracious and his words open on my lap to yeah. redeem my motives. Yeah. That, I, that, I, don't, I don't think it could have been said better. That's really good, Jacob. You know, just, you know, if, if you're uptight about why well, I've, I've missed so much, let it go. And just go with today and recognize that, yeah, you, you, you didn't catch the flow for the last five days. <laughs> But you know what? You're here to meet with God. So just start today. And, and Lord willing, you'll have a, a lifetime to be able to build on um, reading the Bible and understanding the Bible. Um, so, yeah, think rightly. Correct your thinking. Come back. Remember what it's all about. Consider Jesus in your passage that you're in today. And keep trying. Don't give up. And know that you are sitting with a lot of other guys who have been very inconsistent at points in their lives. So we just help each other. Okay? As we uh, get back started here, um, I want to just remind you of um, the calendar. If you'll take a look at it inside your notebook for a moment. Um, just so you can kind of see where we've come, where we are today, and where we're headed. We'll set our lesson in the context of what we're doing in build. Um the first five meetings of the year were all about the first discipline. Um, I haven't ever, I don't think I've done a year of build the way that I'm doing it this year, that we're going through it this year. And that is put discipline one all up at the front only, and then go to discipline two and keep them all together, and then discipline three, keep it like that. Um, but I wanted to do it this way. What I've done in the past is I've done a heavy load of discipline one at the beginning. Then a heavy load also of Discipline 2 next, and then a Discipline 3, and then sprinkle Discipline 1 and 2 kind of back in as you go. And I did that because I just wanted to keep it throughout all the year, but I think we're able to do that, and I want to just try it this year. But I don't want you to get the sense from the agenda, or the, as you see the, the calendar, that we're done with Discipline 1 now, like first grade. Okay, we're not. We're going to keep talking about it. You're going to see today, you can't talk about Discipline 2 without talking about your heart. Um, but today, November 17th, we're going to, on Discipline 2, we're going to do the whole Bible survey. We're just going to kind of do a, a flyover of Scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And basically just ask ourselves, what does this reveal to us about God and how He thinks of the household? Because that's what we need to align our thoughts about the household with, right? It doesn't matter what you think about your home. It doesn't matter what I think about my home. If we were a part of a denomination, it wouldn't matter what our denomination thought about 
dads and parents and homes, what matters is that we think God's thoughts about the household and household relationships. And so today we're going to expose ourselves to a scripture in a kind of a flyover kind of way uh, so that we can see what his heart is for the household and then we'll try to um, set our hearts in the same trajectory. Um, Coming up in December, we'll spend a few more times, um, and into January, we'll spend more time in Discipline 2 on the home. Uh, the last one of this year, on December 15th, we'll, we'll focus on our role as husbands loving our wives. And then when we come back after Christmas, we're going to focus on your wife's role, or your future wife's role. Um, because it's important for you as a man, if you're going to shepherd your household and you have no idea what the gospel expectations are for a woman who will be your wife, you are in for a rude awakening. Okay? You need to know, because what if you were found encouraging your wife in a direction that the gospel doesn't want her to go in your home? Because you're a man, you're you're a man of the world like every other man, and you've got thoughts about women, you grew up with thoughts about women, and thoughts about what women should be doing and thoughts about what women shouldn't be doing and if you bring that into your marriage which you do, which I did, which we all do um, you need to have that checked by scripture so we're going to come back and talk about the household in regards to what God thinks about women and their role so that you can be sure to be found not fighting against God but actually helping your wife um, discover what God has for her uh, and then we'll move on into the ministry and the qualifications and so forth. Okay, So that just kind of gives you a shot of where we've been at. I want you to take out um, your handout for today, but I want you to take the yellow sheet, which is your homework. Um, your homework on the first page is going to be like it has been so far. We're just going to take another section of Psalm 119. Um, just kind of kind of do that all year. And... Um, just keep asking or just practice the discipline of coming to the word of God to notice what it says about God what does it say about my heart or my soul uh, and so forth if you turn over on the back side the questions everything on the back side you might even want to keep this out today as we go through the the handout uh, the worksheet all of these questions are kind of like I want you to between now and the next two weeks I want you to come back and ask yourself some questions about those sections um, or that, that we go through. So the back part, in other words, what I'm trying to say is the homework has to do with what you're hearing today. It's not about go read the Bible and hear some questions. Your homework today for next time is about what you're going to hear next. Okay? So if you want to kind of keep that out in front of you as you go, you'll see what, I'm, what, it, what it's referring to. Okay? So with that in mind, let's get our Bibles ready. Get your worksheet there. And uh, we're going to be talking about Discipline 2 this morning, the home or household relationships. We're going to do a biblical survey of the home. Again, the goal is for us to align our view of households with God's view of households. Okay? So before we jump into God's Word, let's pray and let's ask Him for help. Heavenly Father, we do ask for your help. Uh, We want to see um, household relationships as you do. Um, So God, give us the fullness of your spirit, illuminate your word, illuminate our hearts to be able to see, bring light so that we understand. Um, Help us to bring changes where we need to bring changes. And Father, where there is reason to be encouraged, God, we want to see that too because we need lots of encouragement. So Lord, we humble ourselves under your word so that it can speak over us. We do not sit in judgment of your word 
Um, we rather would want to be conformed to your word. So God, have your way in us now, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's talk first. I'm going to give you nine categories this morning from Scripture to help us align our view of our household with God's heart for them. Number one, we just need to see God's concern for the household. We're going to go to some familiar passages, and we're going to start from the left. In your Bible, we're going to work to the right. Exodus 20. What is Exodus 20? What should come to your mind when somebody says Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5? Ten Commandments. Okay. Look at um, commandment number 5. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Remember, Israel has just been delivered from Egypt. They've come through the Red Sea. They are now at the base of Mount Sinai. Uh, It is trembling and it is on fire. It is shaking uh, because God is consuming that mountain and revealing things like this to Moses. Look at commandment number seven, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. That's another man's household. That's another man's wife. And then look at the last commandment, number 10 in verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Um, Wow. So first of all, what you see here is God has specific ideas. He has specific expectations for this very basic foundational relationship arena called the household. Early on, you think about it. What did what did Abraham, and then what did uh, Isaac, and then what did Jacob and his twelve sons have in regards from God about how to live prior to this moment? I mean, here is coming an absolute deluge of commandments and ordinances and statutes and truths and commandments and what did they have before this compared to this amount not much it was clear that they what how they should live but they didn't have it like this so here's god's first opportunity in redemptive history by his will what he's doing to pour out what he as a lawmaker has in his heart so that they will follow his laws. And look, he's very specific. He, this shows us. What does this tell us about God? He has a strong opinion about households. It matters to him, right? So here, this is the, the most formalized set of regulations that anybody on earth had ever had known yet to this point um, in redemptive history in Exodus 20. And God revealed that the household relationships mattered greatly to them, uh, to him. Go to Deuteronomy 4, moving to the right. Deuteronomy 4, verse 9. Moses is giving the law again to them on the plains of Moab as they were getting ready to leave the wilderness. And he says in verse 9, Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently. What does that sound like? Discipline number one, shepherd your heart. So that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen, and they do not depart um, from your heart all the days of your life. But, what? Make them known to your sons and your grandsons. 
Is there a connection between discipline one and discipline two in God's mind? Yes. Verse 10. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb. That's the mount. When the Lord said to me, assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. Um, The next generation was to hear and know about God first and foremost through the generation above them and before them. Right? That was God's heart for Israel. Go to Deuteronomy 6. I think that's the passage we'll be in next time. Is that right? Yeah. We'll um, actually just go through this part of uh, Deuteronomy 6 next time together. But look at uh, verses 4 to 9. Notice the same thing. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And then look, he talks about your heart loving the Lord, and he then says these words. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. So you see your heart and the word of God are to be in a full contact sport, God says to Israel. Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Your house is to be dominated, Israel, by my word. Um, But first, you're supposed to love me with your heart and my words are supposed to be on your heart. So for God, he has made an inseparable conclusion that Discipline 2 and Discipline 1 go together, um, we could say. Um, So this tells us that God intends, this is really interesting, watch this. Discipline 1 is supposed to make an impact on Discipline 2, right? Your heart, my word, your home. Okay? Go to Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord your God brings you, the verse 1, when the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you utterly defeat them, or you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Well, why? Don't make households with these people, God says. Why? They will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of Yahweh will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, and hew down their asherim, and burn their graven images with fire. Um, Israel was to not even let those kinds of households begin. You understand? Why? Because the generation that intermarries those of another God have their own hearts turned away from Yahweh. And the burden was on dad and mom in Israel to shepherd their children in such a way that their children would not abandon Yahweh. So what we just saw before is that discipline one impacts discipline two. What you do with the word of God in your heart is to make an impact on your home. But what does this say? You make this kind of a household, and what's going to happen to your heart? 
See, it goes both directions, right? There's a relationship. It's a two-way street between your heart and your home. Um, Look at uh, Psalm 78. Let's go there. Psalm 78, 1 to 8. Verse 1. This is a masculine of Asaph. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I'll open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. Well, where do we get these old sayings? Uh, what we heard, we, we heard these and we've known them. Our fathers have told us. So here's Israel centuries later. This is how we learn this. Our fathers told us. And we will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of Yahweh and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers. See, he's referencing his word, right? Why did he do that? Why did he establish? Why did he appoint? Why did he command? For this reason, that they should teach him to their children. See, what is this telling you about Yahweh towards his people Israel? What does this reveal about God as we study? He has a a deep concern for his word impacting the next generation, the household. Verse 6, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children. I mean, he's not even stopping. Uh, He doesn't have just one generation in mind. And, and we are so self-centered in our day. I mean, look, the world just revolves around me and my life as I know it. And when I'm dead, as far as I know, the world doesn't exist anymore. I mean, that's the way that we live as Americans. And we have to have, as the church, if we can move away from what was said to Israel here specifically and think principally in regards to our next generation, we got to live today like the next generation depends on how we live today as Christians and what we hold to and what we believe. If we don't, who's going to tell them? Who's going to tell them? It's up to us. Verse 7, that they should put their confidence in God. How, how are my kids going to know that? How are your kids that have yet to be born going to know that? And not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And not be like their fathers. And then he, he backtracks and looks back goes, look back at what our parents were like, our forefathers. Our kids should not be like they were, stubborn, rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. They didn't shepherd their hearts, that generation in the wilderness in particular and beyond. Um, So God's intention was that what a man personally would know concerning Yahweh had to impact his household. There's an inseparable connection between man's heart for Yahweh and his obligation with his children. That's undeniable for Israel. Um, Well, how did Israel do regarding these things? Let's go forward even some more centuries. Go to Malachi or Malachi, the Italian prophet. That's dumb. I'm sorry. Stuff sticks with you that you wish never did stick with you. I can remember um, a youth pastor once going, uh, telling us, look at, uh, let's go to, I want you to go to Hezekiah chapter 4. And kids are like, 
Where's that? <laughs> yeah. There's only one way to walk away from a moment like that, and that's just feeling really dumb. Let's think about Malachi. Let's think about what Israel um, experienced years later. So here's a prophet speaking to Israel. For behold, verse 1, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says Yahweh of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. That's a day of judgment, is it not? But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says Yahweh of hosts. Now, he's talking about a day of judgment. He's speaking to Israel and he's saying a day of judgment is going to come. It's going to be overwhelming and anybody who is not with me is undone and dissolved and gone. But those of you who fear me, you're okay. Verse 4, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, the statutes, ordinances, which I commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And what's this prophet, what's on his mind from God? What has God revealed to this prophet that he needs to do before that day of judgment? Uh, he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. This is God's, this is Yahweh's great compassion for his people Israel that he's saying, look, I am coming and I am bringing my judgment on those who do not know me and I do not want to smite the land with a curse. So Israel, get your act together in your households. What does that just tell you about Yahweh? What is he thinking about the household from when he opens the floodgates of commandments coming out of his mouth to his people Israel and included in that three different times, at least in the Ten Commandments, you hear an emphasis on household relationships and then all the way centuries beyond that to the very end when he's saying, I'm coming and I'm going to judge the world. Get your act together, fathers and children. I mean, what does that tell you about God as we just fly over? Household relationships matter in God's mind into the Old Testament. Well, we should move into the New Testament. Go to Ephesians 6. And don't worry, we're going to go left to right a, a couple of different times. So you may be thinking, yeah, but didn't Jesus say some things about households? Yeah, we're going to save that for, in, uh, for just a few minutes. But let's go to Ephesians 6. 1 to 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. What is that promise? So that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And bring them up in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. And the Lord in Ephesians is, is almost always exclusively Jesus. So bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord who is Jesus Christ. Um, so what do we find when we get into the New Testament? That the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, is brought under the discipline and the instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ for the church. So children in the church need 
to shepherd their hearts well in the gospel so that they can be prepared to honor their parents. And dads and moms are to shepherd their heart well with the gospel so as to not be completely frustrating to their children, to aggravate them. So not only was Israel to demonstrate and to reveal to the nations around them God's heart for household relationships, but now we find in the New Testament that there's a very similar reflection and revelation from the church that the church is supposed to have for the people who live around them. Uh, God has a heart for this. Look at um, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4. How much does this really matter? Well, how about overseers and elders? It is a trustworthy statement, verse 1, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household well, how will he take care of the church of God, etc.? So now, what is this revealing to us? That in God's design in the church, it's to have men leading who have trained themselves to oversee their household relationships well. Um, Men who are not going to play leapfrog over their wives. Men who are not going to play leapfrog over their children as they engage in gospel ministry in the church. They are the ones who can lead the rest by example. Um, So this tells us from the Old Testament and even into the New that God has a a solid concern for the household. You, you, You cannot walk away from Scripture and say, the household, in God's eyes, eh, you just can't. It's heavy on his mind. Number two, let's just look at one Old Testament man who grasped God's heart for the household. Let's go back to Joshua 24. Joshua is at the end of his life and his ministry with Israel. He has brought them into the promised land. You remember Moses was not allowed to. So Joshua was the man. He was, along with Caleb, the only two from the prior earlier generation who were permitted to go into the promised land because they did not waver when they brought the report back about the land when they went with the 12 people. Joshua 24, verse 14. Now he's going to give them one more exhortation. How about verse 14? Now, therefore... Israel, fear the Lord. Well, you know, we need to actually back up. They're gathered together in Shechem, chapter 24, verse 1. And what is significant about that, and you can go back and read through this, is, and as your reading plan takes you from the beginning through, watch, just, just watch for the word Shechem. It's probably something you've never paid attention to before. But something is significant about Shechem, and that is when Jacob got there, when he came back with his family from having been with, at his in-laws, he said, everybody bring me your idols. So he says this to his family and his servants, and he says, bring me your idols. And they all bring him, and he digs a hole next to the oak tree in Shechem, and he buries the idols. And they go forward. Well, a lot of time has passed. Israel became a nation in Egypt. Um, They came out of Egypt with their idols, their new idols. 
Um, God says in Amos 5, was it me that you worshipped all those years in the wilderness? You brought out every idol you had in Egypt with you. So they're, they're just an idolatrous people. Do you know why? Because that's what I am and that's what you are. That's the only thing we can be. Okay? And so Joshua takes them back to Shechem. Gee, I wonder why. Because they're still idolatrous people. And he says, verse 14, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. What's he saying? What kind of a man was Abraham on the other side of the river? He was an idolater. That's all he could be. That's all any human being could be. And so, what were they in Egypt? They had idols there. And look what he's saying to them now. God delivered you from that. We're in the promised land. And you're still carrying around those idols from beyond the river in Egypt. What are you doing? Put them away. If it is disagreeable, verse 15, in your sight to serve Yahweh, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living now. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So, if, what he does, he takes him to Shechem, the place where idols are buried for, in Jacob's family. And he says, look back. Here's our history. Idolatry. Abraham, Egypt, it's just idolatry. Now, we're in the promised land. Now look before you. The Amorites were here. They're still lingering. And guess what? They've got idols. Now, you need to make a decision today, Israel. Who are you going to serve? And Joshua stands as a man, as an example that says, me, and not just me personally, but me and my household will serve Yahweh. That's a great Old Testament example of a man who's not going to give us any ground to idolatry in his own life or in his family. He didn't have a category. Get this, guys. He did not have a category that he could personally serve Yahweh, and if his kids or his wife didn't, that's okay. He didn't have a category for that. He was not going to rest with that. He was going to be troubled by that. Um, number three. There's a, number two is an Old Testament man who grasped this. Let's talk about some Old Testament failures to grasp God's heart for the household. Exodus 4. Let's talk about Moses. I don't know how many times if you've read this and, and maybe just missed it or read it and go like, what's going on here? kind of this crazy little excerpt, right? Watch this. Verse 21 of Exodus 4. Okay, so what's happened here? God's come to Moses in the burning bush and he said, get back to Egypt. I'm going to set my people loose and I'm going to speak through you. No, not me. Uh, No, you. It is going to be you. I made your mouth. No, not me. No, it is you. Uh, Okay, no, not me. Okay, I'll give you your brother Aaron. Um, And finally he persuades him to go and he starts to make his way back. Verse 21, And Yahweh said to Moses, um, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, um, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. And then just this pops up. Now it came about at the lodging place on the way that Yahweh met him, met Moses, and sought to put him to death. That's just like a little change in the story. You you go back and you tell Pharaoh this, I'm going to kill you. 
Verse 25, then Zipporah, his wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. What did he just say about sons? Um, I'm going to kill the firstborn of Egypt. Okay? And here's your son, and you haven't even circumcised him. According to what those who believe in me, like Abraham, are supposed to do on the eighth day, So Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and she threw it at Moses' feet and she said, you are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So God left, let him alone. What a statement. So God let Moses alone. At that time she said, you are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Um, Moses put God's deliverance of his people, Israel, potentially at risk by neglecting um, circumcising his own son. His family did not have the sign of the covenant and he was supposed to go back and represent the covenant God. Yeah, but I don't listen to him because I don't circumcise my own kids. So Moses, on the way to inform Israel that the God that Israel was in covenant with, which had the sign of circumcision, the God of that covenant who was concerned to deliver them, Moses failed to take that covenant seriously with his own family So how could that covenant-neglecting man speak for the covenant God to his covenant people? And this is where you praise God for godly wives. Who knows why you... How many... That you're alive today because of your wife's obedience. Moses was recoverable, though, because there's lots left from here, right? That we can read about him. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 2. Moses was recoverable. Let's look at a man who uh, was not recoverable in his household, was not recoverable. This is sobering. 1 Samuel 2, it's still basically the time period of the judges, right? Um, Samuel's been born. Samuel's a young boy now who's before the Lord. And there is a priest. His name is Eli. He is overseeing the temple, uh, not the temple, the tent, Um And it says in verse 12, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know Yahweh. Look, that doesn't mean that they did not know about him. That means that they did not know him in the saving way that a man was supposed to know him, especially a priest. And the customs of the priests with the people, they didn't know Yahweh or those customs. When when any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. That's where the tent was. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come, say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat for you, only raw meat. If the man said to him, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, they must surely burn the fat first and then you can take as much as you desire because that's what was spelled out in Leviticus. Then the sons would say, no, but you shall give it to me now and if not, I'll take it by force. All while you worship the Lord. Have a nice day. I mean, how do you, what a spoiler. Thus the sin of the young men was very great before Yahweh for the men despised the offering of the Lord. Uh, Drop down to verse 22. Now Eli was very old and he had heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel and even heard this, how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? 
The evil things I hear from all these people. No, my sons, for the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for Yahweh desired to put them to death. But in contrast, you have Samuel, who was growing in stature and favor, both before Yahweh and men. Drop down to verse 29. A man of God comes to Eli and he tells him the hard truth. He says, why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I've commanded in my dwelling? And here, listen to this. And you honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choices of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord of God uh, of Israel says, I indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now, Yahweh declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. You honor your sons above me. That's a helpful clarification added to us about how we should think about our households. Uh, It's a protection with all of the emphasis on the importance of household relationships, look, here's what's important to understand. God is not looking for household members to honor one another over him. As important as the household is, he doesn't want any one member of the household to honor another member of the household over God. We'll talk about this more in number seven, but um, God ended this family. He ended this household. A priestly family that was mediating between him and the people of God, he ended so that he could work out of another father's line for the priesthood, and that would be Samuel. So let's take a look at Samuel. 1 Samuel 7, go a few chapters later. Verse 15, Samuel's towards the end of his life. Uh, 1 Samuel 7, verse 15. Now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He used to go annually on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, Mitzpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he, his return was to Ramah, for his house was there, and there he judged Israel, and he built an altar there to the Lord. And it came about, chapter 8, when Samuel was old, that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. That makes good sense. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of the second was Abijah, and they were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain, and they took bribes, and they perverted justice. And this, is, this should be the, the great question you would ask yourself as you read through the Old Testament, as you read through the Second Kings, as you read through First Kings, as you read through First and Second Chronicles, why on earth is there a good king and then his son is wicked? King, what are you doing? Now look, we're not putting the pressure on a man to convert his child. But what's happening? Or maybe we should say what's not happening? So here's a, here's a boy who grew up watching Eli honor his sons above God. And the contrast in the early chapters of 1 Samuel is Eli, bad. Eli's son, bad. But Samuel, good. That's the way the first chapters go. It's just this back and forth scene from the bad example to the good example. You get to chapter, into chapter 7 and chapter 8. Here's Samuel as an old man now. And how is he doing with his kids? Not so good. 
Verse 4, all the elders of, the Israel, uh, of Israel gathered together. They came to Samuel at Ramah and they said to him, Behold, you've grown old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. The nation is chafing under Samuel's sons. Uh, and this is an ungodly request for a king. And it is impossible to separate it away from the chafing they felt under Samuel's son's ungodly leadership. The fact that he did not do well with his sons in training his sons is part of the cause for why they are making an ungodly request for a king. So Samuel's ministry lacked some integrity. And here is a great example in the Old Testament to show how um, the lapse of a failure at discipline two impacts discipline three. The ministry that Samuel had beyond his household to the nation was impacted because his household was not where it needed to be. Um, it's, a, it's a failure to grasp God's heart at that point, even by a priest. How about second uh, and a seer, a prophet? 2 Samuel 7, let's talk about David. Go to 2 Samuel. We understand this. This is far too, not far too clear, but just very clear to us. About chapter 7, verse 11. Well, David, you know, in chapter 7, he, he wants to build God a house. He's like, I, I, I dwell in a house with paneled rooms and God's still in a tent. Something's not right here, David says. I'm going to build God a house. And Nathan says to him, you know what? Go do it. Yahweh's with you. And as he leaves, Yahweh comes back to Nathan and says, uh, not so fast. Not him, but his son will do it. And then God speaks to David. Verse 8, I took you from the pasture. I took you to be ruler of my people. I've been with you wherever you've gone. Verse 9, and I'll appoint a place for my people Israel. I'll plant them. Verse 11, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I'll give you rest from all of your enemies, David. And Yahweh also declares to you that Yahweh will make a house for you. So wait a minute, the whole point was that David wanted to make a house for Yahweh, and Yahweh is saying, no, I'm going to turn the tables on you. I'll make a house for you. I'll, I'll make a household for you. Look at verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. God's covenant with David being made here. Verse 18. Then David the king went in and he just sat before Yahweh and he said, Who am I, O Lord Yahweh? And what is my house that you brought me thus far? So the priority has been shown here that David's house is going to be huge. Go to chapter 11. And you know what happens in chapter 11? David destroys another household. And at the end of chapter 11, verse 26, Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife, and she bore him a son. Whew. I think we got it. I think we made it through that, David might have said. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of Yahweh. Um, chapter 12, verse 9. Why have you despised the word of Yahweh by doing evil in his sight? Nathan says to him, you ruined a household through the sword of the sons of Ammon. 
Um, verse 10, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your household. So now your household's going to feel it. Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. What? That's what Yahweh's going to do. David undid his own household. One man's neglect of his household then impacted... What, what happened to these 12 tribes after David? They forever split. 10 to the north, 2 to the south. So one man's neglect of his household impacted an entire nation for generations. Guys, that's... Can, can you imagine your mistakes your unrepentant sin in your household impacting look I know you're not the king of a nation um, so in many ways you and I are protected from implications that can come from that but um, it's possible not taking care of your household well can really impact a lot of people um, how about Solomon 1 Kings 11 turn there Verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. My daughter came home and said uh, one day, Dad, why? Is it true that the Old Testament doesn't condemn polygamy? And I said, uh, What's the first thing in the Bible that God says about a family? She goes, Oh, yeah. The two shall become one flesh. That's pretty clear. I mean, you just need one hand to be able to do that. You can be a little kid and go two, one, right? It's pretty simple. Um, and then you have this, these narrative accounts that go on and on and on about men not paying attention to that. And you don't have at every spot, and by the way, this was bad, being said in a parenthetical statement. But that doesn't mean that God's for it, Right? Um, God made it very clear. In fact, when Jesus comes, in his day, they had a more sophisticated way of dealing with polygamy. Uh, or they're just reckless, uh, adulterous hearts. The Pharisees could not be ever uh, accused of having multiple wives at once. We'll just get rid of them one by one until when we get tired of them. And how did Jesus correct that? From the beginning... It has not been this way. He went right back to where everybody should have gone, and that command, and that, uh, not, not even, well, it is a, it's a statement, a strong statement in Genesis 2, that it is to be this way. That stands, guys. And what Solomon did was not acceptable. What David did was not acceptable. What any man did was not acceptable. Um, Hannah's wife, or Hannah's husband, who uh, fathered Samuel, it's not right. It's not right to have two, two wives. Side note, anyway. King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which Yahweh has said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you. They will surely turn your heart away after their gods. And Solomon held fast to these in love. He has 700 wives princesses and 300 concubines and his wives turned his heart away 
When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to Yahweh his God as the heart of David his father had been. So he built his own household contrary to God's will, and it adversely impacted his heart. What what an amazing principle. If you build your home in adversity with God, in, in contradiction to God, it's going to impact your soul. It's going to impact the kind of man you are. Um, and it's easy for men sometimes to say, well, yeah, you know, but my household may be a wreck, but look, I've got things to offer the church. No, you don't. No, you don't. No, I don't. Okay, our homes need to be a certain way, and it'll make an impact. Jacob. When I was studying Proverbs 4.23, it says, guard your heart with all vigilance, but from those streams of life, this passage in the first Kings weighed heavy on me. Um, yeah. Solomon, the guy who did this, yeah. who had his heart turned, was the same guy who God used to write the scripture to say, everything in your life comes from your heart, so keep it pure. And so being excited, knowing the truth of this, and being excited about heart shepherding isn't the same as doing it. <laughs> so Solomon's a sober example. Yeah. To going through building and being excited about building, being able to teach building. Mm. And you have to do it. So I have to do it. That's right. So you, you just can't conclude from Scripture, um, at least in the Old Testament, where we spent most of our time so far, that the household is not important. You, you just can't make that conclusion. In fact, you'd have to make the opposite conclusion, right? Um, it actually, the household appears to be, maybe we could say it this way, one of the decisive places um, where a man is made or lost. Um, Yet for us, it is, so, it is so easy for us to think that it's the relationships outside of the home that matter. I mean, you, you learn that from an early age, right? We've talked about that. I got into junior high, and I was convinced that all of the dumb people lived in my house. And I had to go outside of my house to go find the people who are wise and cool. Um, I wonder why I would think that way as a lost kid. You know? Because the devil knows and my flesh knows, and everything about me is anti-God, everything about Satan is anti-God, get me to go the opposite direction. Um, let's talk about number four. Let's talk about the ease at which God is forgotten in the household. Let's stay in the Old Testament. Go back to Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6, verse 10. Pick up where we left off earlier in, in looking and reading in Deuteronomy 6. Verse 10, Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not build. By the way, this is where it is okay to say you didn't build it. Uh, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig. Just let it go. Just If you're not sure, just let it go. Um, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. Then, then, I give you all this stuff you didn't build, you didn't make, you didn't cultivate, you didn't get it. I gave it to you. It's at that point that you should what? Kick back and celebrate. Because my blessing is all over you. At that point, kick back and take your eyes off of you. There's nothing to worry about because you've been the object of my blessing. What does he say? 
Then watch yourself that you do not forget Yahweh who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Wow. Go to chapter 8, verse 10. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless Yahweh your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget Yahweh your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget Yahweh your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. What's the point here? He says, look, I'm going to make your household, I'm just going to, you're just going to be blessed. And that is when you should watch yourself the most. The home easily for Israel became the platform where God was forgotten. Everything they had was from God, but they forgot him. Let's look at some good news. Number five, the impact of one person's faith on the entire household. Go to Acts chapter 10. Story of Cornelius. And then we'll look at Lydia. And then we'll look at the uh, Philippian, Philippian jailer. Three great examples in the New Testament of how just one man, one person, can bring, by God's grace, can be the channel through which God's grace comes to the whole household. Look at Acts 10. Verse 22, you, you know uh, Peter is with Cornelius. It says here in, in chapter 10, verse 22, um, they said to Peter, the, the servants who came to get him, listen, Cornelius, a centurion, a Roman, he's a Gentile. He is a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was de- divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. So he invited them in and gave them lodging. And on the next day, he got up and went away with them. And some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. him. On the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends to his house. Drop down to verse 44. Peter says, look, here's the gospel. And while Peter in verse 44 was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also in this Gentile household. So Cornelius, his entire household and beyond was impacted because of where he was with God. Um, the household became then a platform for God's truth to become uh, to come to others. So here's just the opposite of what we've been seeing. Uh, this is good news, guys. This is There's hope that one man... Uh, Longing for God and wanting to hear more from God can can be an amazing tool in his household. Uh, same chap, uh, Let's go to chapter 16. Same book. Paul comes to Derby and to Lystra. Makes his way to Philippi, chapter 16, verse 12. Um, they made their way to Philippi. And on the Sabbath day, verse 13... We went outside the gate to a riverside, Luke says, where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer and we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled there. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, that means she's a Gentile, was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul and when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us and they stayed. 
Um, the Lord opened her heart and her household was baptized. Um, should not make any conclusions from that uh, that are outside of the trajectory of, of it, this is a statement of what happened and it did for whatever reason Luke didn't feel the need in this household situation to tell you about the repentance of the household but if you just read a little bit further and we look at the example of the jailer you can go to verse 22 and you know that they get thrown in jail they tear their robes off them they beat them with rods uh, they get thrown into prison and um, verse 29 he Earthquake happens, soldiers about to uh, fall on his sword and kill him because if the prisoners have left, uh, he knows that his commanders are just going to kill him because he didn't do his job. And um, he comes in with lights, uh, and he trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, the Roman soldier did. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You and your household believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And he took him that very, uh, I'm sorry, and the, uh, they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. So they spoke the words that he had to believe in to, and he spoke them to the man and to his household. And he took him that very hour of the night and washed their wounds and immediately he was baptized, he and all of his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. This is what happens, and this is what happened back with Lydia and her household. So what great encouragement that just one man seeking after the Lord, one woman seeking after the Lord, uh, coming to faith in Jesus Christ can bring a huge impact on an entire household. So we shouldn't be surprised, number six, to see that there is actually an attack on the household taking place. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul's last letter to Timothy. He's preparing Timothy to um, be able to keep ministering after when Paul is gone. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, But realize this, Timothy, that in the last days difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self. In verse 2, they'll even be disobedient to parents. The household's going to be a mess. Um, And so forth. Go back down to, uh, now look down at verse 5. Um, avoid such men as these that I've listed. Verse 6. For among these kinds of men are those who enter into households. Well, what, why would they be going into a household? And captivate weak women weighed down with sins. Weak women who are led on by various impulses. Women who are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men of depraved mind rejected in regard to the faith, but they will not make further progress for their folly will be obvious to all. Watch out for these kinds of men. Evidently, the women in these homes, they didn't even really know how to address their sin with the gospel. They're weighed down by their sins. They're led on by their just various impulses. And they weren't well equipped to know how to deal with those things. They were always learning, but it evidently wasn't a learning from God's word that had impacted their heart. And I think the the important question here is, where are the men? Are, Are these, they're not widows. If they were widows, he would use the word widows. 
And women didn't live on their own. They lived with their family. So what is this? These are women whose husbands are somewhere. Go to Titus chapter 1. You see the same thing. Verse 7, the overseer must be above reproach. And all of the qualifications come down here. Verse 9, men who are holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teachings so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Now, why would you need to be that kind of a man? Verse 10, well, there are, for there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced. Why do those men need... Look, you're not... That's pretty strong words for those guys. They, they, just, they need to shut up. And an elder needs to be the one to tell them to shut up. Why? Because they're upsetting whole families. How are they doing that? How is it that they're upsetting whole families? Well, they're teaching things they should not teach for the sake of fonded, uh, sort of gain. One of, the, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. I love this. Reprove them severely, not so that they'll run away and never come back, but so that they may be sound in the faith. There's a redemptive um, agenda in mind for Titus with these men, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. So here's the question again. Where are the men? I mean... The household's best protection is a man who shepherds his own heart and then he shepherds his family into the church where there are shepherds who can refute bad teaching which results in ungodliness in the household. They refute it with sound doctrine. The men need to be able to refute error with sound doctrine. Look, guys, for every single one of you, Work by the grace of God in the gospel to equip yourself in such a way so that you will not leave your wife and your children vulnerable to bad teaching. Okay? Right? You're the first line of protection. And then you also have elders as well. Verse 7, or verse 7, number 7. The household can become an obstacle to the gospel. So all we've said a whole bunch about how important the household is. Now we need to... Uh, Add to that. Go to Matthew 10. We're almost done. Matthew 10, verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household? I thought you loved the household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. All right, so here's what, here's what Jesus is saying. The gospel of the kingdom, it invades one life oftentimes in a family, Right? And then what happens next is so important. That saved individual in a family is called then to bring the gospel to the rest of the family. That person is not called to set family above God. That, that man is called to set his family under the gospel. Okay? 
And then what happens at that point is in God's hands. It may be like Lydia. It may be like Cornelius. It may be like the Philippian jailer, and many will come to Christ. And it also may be, as you set your family under the gospel, that God will bring a sword and divide your family. So what this tells us in completing the view of God's view of households is that he doesn't defend and build every single household without exception. He builds up households under his will and what he wants to do, and he builds them up, but it must always be under his truth and under his gospel because there are some households who will not survive as the household is brought under the gospel. That's possible. Um, But there should be hope. In other words, what is the apex of what God is doing in this world? Is it the family? Or is it the gospel and the church? It's the gospel and the church. And the family is to be a servant brought under the gospel supremacy. Sometimes, as you saw with Cornelius and Lydia and the Philippian jailer, the gospel will take over a whole household by God's grace. One sometimes bringing the entire household under the gospel will find that family splitting apart as well. And either way, God is glorified. Luke 9 is more of the same thing. Um, People are throwing up excuses. I need to go bury my dad before I follow you. And Jesus is saying, it sounds to me like your household's an obstacle to following me. Mark chapter 3 is uh, Jesus sitting inside and he's been doing so much ministry that they haven't eaten and it says that um, his his kin are outside, his family, and they, they want him because they think he's lost his mind. And they say, you know, your mother and your brother is outside looking for you and what does Jesus say to the crowd? Who are my mothers and my brothers? Right? And who are they? What does he say? Do you remember? Those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. So what does that tell you about where God views it? God views the household very highly, but what is higher than the family yet still? The gospel. And you must hold your family up high, but never do the Eli thing and honor your sons above Yahweh. And be watching. You have to have a category, guys, that your family can become an obstacle to the gospel in your own life and in other people's lives, in your household. It can. So you have to constantly be working to keep them in check together. Okay. Number eight, leading a wife requires a strong grasp on the gospel and also on the church. We won't take the time to turn there because I want to make sure we finish on time here, but you guys can look at that. What What does Paul say to the husbands? Husbands, love your wives, and what do you need to know well so that you know how to love your wife? You need to know the gospel well. Like Jesus died for the church. You need to know that. So if you're going to protect your household, what does that mean that you're going to need to know? The gospel. But what is his whole point in Ephesians 5 there? He's talking about marriage, but he can't stop talking about what? The church, because marriage is a picture of what God has done through his son with the people that he has saved. And so you need to also know about the church if you're going to care for your family well. How well do you know the gospel? How well do you know the doctrine of the church and the relationship between Jesus and the members of his body? Your love for your wife is connected to that. And then lastly, a New Testament model for marriage. 
I want to introduce you to an awesome couple. Go to Acts chapter 18. Acts 18, we'll finish with this. I'll give you a a New Testament model for a household. Acts 18, verse 1. Where is Paul? Paul is at Corinth. He left Athens and he went to Corinth and he found a Jew named Aquila and a uh, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and they were working for by trade they were tent makers. So there's Aquila and Priscilla. Go to verse 24. Uh, You know, they meet um, Apollos, a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man. He came to Ephesus and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. What a, what a marriage that can come alongside a man who's preaching the gospel and he doesn't know all that he needs to know yet and they help him. You see that? And when he wanted to cross to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and they wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace and he powerfully refuted the Jews in public demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Now, go to Romans 16. One last reference to um, uh, Priscilla and Aquila. Romans 16, verse 3. As Paul finishes Romans, he's got this huge long list of people that he knows. What a great way to end a uh, a really heavy doctrine and gospel-loaded passage with just a whole bunch of people. Uh, Paul did not live in an ivory tower thinking of these things and... um, just meditating on his own belly button on this stuff. I mean, he was he was thinking about people, this intersected people. Chapter 16, verse 1. I commend you to our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, who is at... Uh, I want to draw, I'm sorry, verse 3. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles also greet the church that is in their, what? House. Oh, that's pretty cool. Have you ever thought about your household, your marriage, your relationship with your parents, your relationship with your kids, being of such um, such a condition that it would just seamlessly make sense? Let's have the church meet here. And I'm not talking about you got a big enough living room. That's important. But what's the issue? That as a husband and a wife, or as a family, your household is of such a condition that it. it Let's have the church be here to see this, to be in this family. Now, one last little side note to humble us all before we leave because we're men and we think highly, uh, far too much of ourselves. Um, I want to point one thing out to you. Write this down, Matthew 1.16, and I'll read them to you, but write this down, Matthew 1.16. Listen to this. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Joseph... The husband of Mary, right? You with me? Joseph, then Mary. Okay, you got that? Write down um, Luke 1 5. I'll read it to you. Luke 1 5. Here it is. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. 
Zacharias had a wife and she was Elizabeth. You got it? Zacharias. I know, I, I look like I'm stupid. Just hang with me though. Zacharias, then Elizabeth, right? Got it? Um, Acts 5.1. Write down Acts 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira. Ananias and then Sapphira, right? You got that? Now, um, Romans 16, verse 3. Greet Priscilla and Aquila. Twice, and in Acts 18, it's the same way. Paul thinks of this couple and how does he refer to them? And maybe you're thrown off with the names of there. Priscilla's first and Aquila's second. What does that mean for Paul? Aquila's a jerk, right? No. It doesn't mean that. What does it mean though? What stands out in his mind? Who stands out in his mind? She, she, she must have been something, spiritually speaking. Because the pattern was always what in their day? The husband and then the wife. Not so here. Okay? And I hope you can identify with that. Or will be able to someday. Our wives are precious gifts from God. Ask Moses. Right? Remember? Moses was able to go do what he did because God didn't kill him because of Zipporah, right? Yeah. All right. Households are important, guys. You've got to put your focus on your household. Let's pray and ask God to press this deep into us. Father in heaven, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the joy of, of just discovering and reinforcing things that we know to be true. Thank you for discovering new things that maybe we've never seen before and pray, Lord, that you would help us now to go home and to lift up our children, lift up our parents, lift up our roommates, lift up our wives high. But Lord, help us to never honor them above you, above the gospel. So Lord, in your mind, what we've learned is you have a very, very, very high place for household relationships, but it is never so high that it is above your truth, your gospel your will, your son, you yourself. Lord, help us to walk that balance. Help us to evaluate our lives well in regards to that. Let us be an open book to one another so that we can help each other and draw each other along as we seek to shepherd our homes well for your sake. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.